just going to read from Ephesians again, just been looking at Ephesians for a little while, so we're not quite at the end, but we're working towards that, that kind of direction, if you like, so we've been at it for a while. So it's Ephesians 6, and I'm just going to begin reading. We'll begin from verse 10. And we're coming out of Paul's closing words, where he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Thank God for his word to us tonight. I just want to begin tonight by sharing with you part of a quote that I used to start off this, this journey through Ephesians many months ago now. It's taken from a short introductory commentary by Sinclair Ferguson. Here it is. This is what he says. From beginning to end, Ephesians sets before us the wonder of God's grace, the privilege of belonging to the church, and the pattern of life transformation the gospel produces. Now this is the journey we've traveled on through this book. Paul has set before us the great teachings of Christian faith, the kind of community this produces or should produce in the church, and the kind of personal life transformation this should lead to. Now what Paul moves on to in these closing verses of Ephesians from verse 10 of of chapter 6 on is, is really to alert God's people to the fact that living out this faith, holding true to this faith, being this community that God wants us to be, that this will be a struggle. That far from being easy, that as we seek to live like this, we will face the fiercest opposition imaginable. But that God God in Jesus Christ has provided us with all the resources we need to resist and overcome whatever opposition might come our way. Now in verse 13 to 20, these resources really are the the main focus. And they're unpacked for us by Paul by way of his famous illustration of the armour of God where he he takes the armour, most likely the armour being worn by the Roman soldiers who were guarding him as he wrote this letter, and he uses this armour piece by piece just to open up the resources God has provided his people. But the main focus really in these first three or four verses here that we're going to look at tonight, not the only focus, but the main focus here is on the enemy we face. The one, if you like, who stands behind the opposition, the conflict that we experience day by day living this Christian life. So if you want a title to cover what I'm going to share with you, then the one that I'm suggesting is Know Your Enemy. As I thought about this, I I remembered something, I believe it's interesting to to reflect on this and learn that, that during the Second World War, 
Field Marshal Montgomery, one of the leading commanders of the British Army, a man once described by Churchill as unbeatable and unbearable, known because of his prickly character and his absolute lack of tact. But during his, his desert campaign in North Africa, he used to have a, a caravan transported around for him to live in wherever the battle might take him. And in this caravan, he used to have on one wall a huge blown-up photograph of his opponent, the great German field marshal, Erwin Rommel, a man who later was killed because of his resistance and involvement in an attempt to assassinate Hitler. But you see, Montgomery kept this photograph on that caravan wall because he wanted to be constantly reminded of the genius of his enemy, to have constantly kept before his eyes the quality of this enemy he was faced with and was called to beat. Now you see, in just the same way, as Christians, and this is what Paul here is reminding the Ephesians and us of, we have got to seek to be, I believe, aware of our enemy, of who he is, how he operates, where he operates, We've got to seek to be aware of the kind of resources and tactics that he's going to use, of the kind of routes he's going to try to use in order to make inroads into our lives. We need to know our enemy. If we're going to be able to use these resources God has given us effectively and do what Paul here urges God's people to do, take our stand against the devil's scheme. So first of all then, let's look at who he is. Who our enemy is. And here uh, we need to look, I think, a little bit beyond Ephesians, if you like, to the wider biblical material. And what the Bible tells us is that originally, the one that we call the devil was an angel called Lucifer. That name meaning morning star or bearer. Of light. And Ezekiel 28 from verse 12 says of Lucifer, says of him that, that you were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. So you see, Lucifer really was the, the greatest of all the angels. But then comes verse 15. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. And Isaiah 14 from verse 12 adds detail to this. That Lucifer, the morning star, the greatest of all angels, became proud. Became jealous of God. Wanted to be like God. Wanted even to rule over God. And so he was cast out of heaven. He became a fallen angel. Here's what Isaiah says. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. 
And then Revelation 12, 7 and 8 adds to our understanding of, of this conflict. What it says, it says there, it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels, that is the devil, fought back. But he was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. And these other fallen angels who fell with Lucifer, with the dragon, they became the spiritual beings that we now call demons. Now you see, the devil is a defeated enemy. Thrown out of heaven and defeated finally and ultimately by the death and by the resurrection of Jesus. But though the devil is a defeated enemy, yet he is still an incredibly powerful enemy. For you see, the sin of man, the fall into sin by Adam and Eve, meant that they lost at that point the dominion given them over the earth by God in Genesis 1.26. You see, the devil, by tempting man into sin, inherited man's dominion over the earth. And so, as for example, John 12.31 tells us, he is now the prince of this world. Now you see, the devil despises. The devil hates human beings. He hates us because we are made in God's image. Because we are the pinnacle of his creation. Because God loves us like he loves nothing else in creation. Because of this, the devil who seeks revenge upon God, he loathes mankind. With his main aim always being to prevent us from truly knowing God. To keep us from living for his glory and from fulfilling God's plan for our lives. And the devil will do whatever he has to do. He will use every means at his disposal to achieve this end. All of this, though, is, is reflected in his change of name. Because the one who was once known as the morning star, as the bearer of light, is now known as Satan. For example, First Chronicles 21.1, meaning Satan, meaning the enemy. The adversary. Or is known as the devil. Matthew 4.1. That is, he is the slanderer. He's the one who speaks then against God. The one who tries to convince the world that there is no God and that they have no need of God. The one who tries to get the church, tries to get the Christian to doubt in God and to doubt in themselves as the people of God. Also, we'll draw the line here. Because there's a whole list of names and titles we could go through. Also, he's called Revelation 9 11. He's called Apollyon, which means the destroyer. Which really sums up in a, a word what he's all about, what the devil is about. Not creating, not nourishing, not nurturing, not building up, but rather always seeking to break down, always seeking to divide and to rip asunder everything that is good. All that is of God, especially the people of God, the community of God, his church. That's something of who he is, our great enemy. Let's move on to look at how he operates. The means, that is, that he seeks to use 
in order to make inroads into our lives, in order to achieve his aim of keeping us from God, or at least making us useless in God's service. And what we find is that the devil's usual means of attack is subtly, subtly by deceit and deception, because he is in the Bible, the serpent. So you see, if the devil can convince non-believers that there is no God, if he can get them to buy into that lie that they don't need God, and also if he can get believers to commit to a self-centered, man-centered travesty of Christianity that's all about us, that it's all about us, all about our good health, our well-being, our prosperity, our success, with God's job then being to make sure that we enjoy all of these and much more. If the devil can get Christians, get the church to buy into this, he has got us. If we've got this worldview exactly where he wants us to be. For you see, living like this, when life's going well, then the devil's got us miles away from where we really are and what really matters, living for God's glory and growing in holiness into his likeness. But also, when this is how our lives are centered, it doesn't then take too much to go wrong in our lives for us to fall apart, for doubts to come flooding in. If there is a God, we wonder, and if I am his, then however can this happen in my life? Now, never mind the fact that Christians are following, following a crucified God. Never mind the fact that God never promises anywhere in his word that life will be easier in this world for his people as opposed to the rest of his inhabitants. In fact, to the, to the contrary, Paul in Acts 14.22, I think, sums up what the true biblical position is about living the Christian life and what we can expect, where he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So you see, often the devil doesn't have to do too much to achieve his aim in our lives. He doesn't have to do anything big. He doesn't have to do anything dramatic. Subtlety, deception, and deceit. By using these tactics, he can get us right where he wants us to be. However, at the same time, he's not unwilling should the opportunity present itself. If we show some sign of real weakness in our life, He's not unwilling to attack us head on, overwhelming us, as 1 Peter 5, 8 puts it, like a roaring lion. He's not unwilling to get in there exploiting our weaknesses, overcoming us maybe with lust or greed or with feelings of anger and jealousy, resentment, bitterness, ambition. Using our weaknesses to again achieve his aim of making us useless. To God. But you know, if we're really going to know our enemy and so be able to effectively be on guard against him, and I don't think it's enough just to know the way the devil's going to attack, the methods that he's going to use. And I think we also have to know the areas that he's going to try to use to attack and infiltrate our lives. And the two main areas that I can find are first, the world. He uses the world. Now, in this context, um, there are other meanings of the word world in the Bible. But in this context, I believe what's meant by the world is anything 
in this created order or in human life and society that is unclaimed for Jesus. The world for the Christian is anything that is not by a conscious act of the will placed under the sovereign authority of God. So it's not just things that are obviously evil in life that are of the world. No, it's not. Even good things, even life's good gifts given by God, if they are allowed to gain an undue priority, if they're allowed to take over God's first place in our life, even these good things can be used to tempt us and lead us away from the will of God, to spiritually weaken us to the point of destruction. The other area that the devil seeks to exploit is our flesh life. Meaning by that, our our old nature. That remaining tendency to sin that even in Christ exists within us and that will exist until this world is no more. And that the devil seeks to exploit. He seeks to use that. He seeks to use that sinful attraction to tempt us away from faithfulness to God. Now, in verse 13 here, I believe we're given something of an insight into how all of this comes together, and at least in one sense, where it says there in verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Now, you see, that phrase, the day of evil, it could be referring to the fact that this is the day of evil. This is the age of evil. The day that they were living in then stretching to the day that we are living in now. This present day, when the power of evil is all around and runs rampant in our world. Or the day of evil could be looking forward to the final climactic conflict at the end of the age between good and evil, between God and Satan. Now I think it's more than possible that actually Paul means both of these. That the day of evil is this present day. But with a final climactic day when evil does its worst and then is destroyed yet to come. But there is, I think, another level here. There's also a personal level. And the the day of evil could be a time when we personally have a climactic experience of the powers of evil in our own lives. There's one writer I read during the week as he puts it. This is what he says. Sometimes we have opportunities to sin but lack any inner compulsion to pursue them. At other times, we experience an inner compulsion, but opportunity is lacking, or we are providentially protected from taking it. But when temptation, desire, and opportunity coincide, the evil day has come. And it's then that we need to be able to stand firm against the devil's attacks. But we'll only be able to stand firm if truly understanding what Paul's saying here in his command in verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. 
it'll only happen if we do it. Not if we read it. Not if we believe it. But if we act upon it. But we're going to look at that a little bit more later. And also in greater depth the next time we look at Ephesians. Okay, well we've looked at who he is. How he operates. Let's move on to look at where he operates. Where he operates. Verse 12 it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's what I say here, that there has been a tendency in, in recent years because of a lack of belief by, by some in the church in the spiritual and supernatural. You know, it sounds ridiculous when you say it, and that's because it is ridiculous, but that is the reality. But there's been this tendency, because of this, to equate what Paul's saying here with human institutions and power structures. That the powers of evil in this world are then forces solely working through corrupt human institutions and power structures. But of course, you see, what accompanies this is the conviction that the key to overcoming these dark forces lies in economic, social, political change. That this is where the battle is to be fought and won. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that this is where these evil powers so often operate. But at the same time, to limit them in this way, to fix their location in this way, is an unbiblical and a dangerous mistake that totally misses the mark. Because look, what does Paul actually say here? He says, doesn't he, that our struggle is not, verse 12, against flesh and blood, but against the authorities, against the rulers, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, the different terms that are used here in this verse, rulers, authorities, spiritual forces, what this, I believe, is, is seeking to get across is that there are different levels of power and authority among these dark forces. And that there are numbers of them. That the devil works then through his demonic forces scattered abroad. But the term Paul uses here that in the NIV is translated spiritual forces, I think is particularly interesting. Because it's used nowhere else in the New Testament. This is the only time this world is used in the New Testament. And Honer, he suggests actually, is his translation of this cosmic potentate. So that gets you thinking. And because of the way that this word is used outside of the New Testament, a man by the name of Wilhelm Michaelis, he suggests this as a definition of what Paul's getting at. That Paul uses this word in order to indicate the terrifying power of their influence and comprehensiveness of their plans and thus to emphasise the seriousness of the situation. You see, this is the enemy that we face. And he is at work in this world. 
He does work through people. He is at work in human institutions and human power structures. But if we think we can beat him, resist him, stand against him by struggling against men and women, by seeking simply to put right economic and social and political injustice, and that alone, then I believe we have got things badly wrong. I mean, it is right that in God's name we should fight against all of these things. But to make these things, to make what happens in this world our main, even our sole focus, that is a huge mistake. Because the real battle is a spiritual battle. The real enemy is not what we see in this world, but rather it is the spiritual powers who stand behind and who manipulate what we experience in this world. I know I've, I've probably said this before, but that would say take this right down to the very personal level. Please remember that behind the little personal problems you might sometimes have with people, or maybe the irritation that, that maybe certain groups of people might cause you, even in the church. What a thought, but it is possible. Please remember, you're laughing, huh? Please remember that behind these people, behind these problems that are driving you mad, that the forces of evil are at work, seeking to mislead, seeking to magnify, seeking to slander, seeking to sow seeds of doubt and division among the people of God, seeking by whatever means to divide, spiritually incapacitate, to destroy God's people and God's work. So make sure that whatever people problem or any other kind of problem that you're faced with, make sure that you deal with it in biblical and so in godly ways. And make sure that whatever you do at the human level, that your focus is much, much more on the spiritual battle that's raging behind. And so that you're drawing on, that you're using the spiritual resources that God has provided to fight this battle. Well, that's our enemy. That's the spiritual enemy that we face. And it is good, I believe, to know who he is. However, when we know who he is, it's easy to become daunted by him, isn't it? Easy to become fearful of him. So there is, I believe, something else we need to know. Something very, very important that we need to know. And we need to know our God. We need to know our God. Now here, as I say that, of course, there's so much that could be said. And no matter how much we said, there would always be more to be said. But here, Paul focuses on one quality, I believe, of God, that in this context that we desperately need to know and be reminded of. And that is of God's almighty, sovereign, irresistible, unconquerable power. Verse 10. 
Finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So, finally, finally, in the light, Paul says, of all that I've taught you so far in this letter, in the life of the light, the life I've laid out for you individually and as a church community, that you should live as a result of that. And in the light of the enemy, I'm going to remind you of who you will have to face throughout your life as you seek to live out this life. Finally, he says, finally, don't forget, never forget that you're called to do all of this, not in your own strength alone, not in your own efforts, but in the Lord. See, Paul calls us to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We live this life then. We fight in this battle in the Lord. And as we do so, as we in obedience keep on doing so day by day, so we can draw upon his mighty power. Now listen to what John Stott has to say here about this mighty power. This is what he says. When Paul urges us to draw upon the power, might, and strength of the Lord Jesus in verse 10. He uses exactly the same trio of words which he has used in Ephesians 1.19 in relation to God's raising of Jesus from the dead. We fight against this mighty enemy then in the overwhelming, undefeatable, resurrection power of Jesus Christ knowing that though this battle might be hard and it is knowing that though at times in our human weakness we might stumble and fall and even feel like giving up we can't go on anymore yet we remember that our weakness does not change the fact of God's power nor does it change the fact that ultimately in Christ, as our faith is in Christ, as we hold on to Christ, that the victory is ours in Christ. These are the words that we find in Revelation 12, 10, and 11. It says there, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our Lord and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, that is the devil, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We have the victory in Christ. As we live in that victory, as our words and as our lives testify to that victory, we can live in and we can experience that victory over the enemy right now by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for your word that reminds us of the just the spiritual realities that, that we live in now as believers. This is what it is about. That it's not what we see here on the surface, but it's what's gone on in the heavenly realms. 
that above everything else we are engaged in a spiritual battle behind the little things that happen in church and in our own lives behind the huge things that are going on in our world there is a spiritual battle that rages and father we have the victory in jesus christ if only we claim and lay hold of what you've given us to live in that victory if only we trust in you and seek to live for your glory we will experience that victory in the here and now. Lord, help us afresh to give ourselves and our church to you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.